Goodhue, one of our great partners, Goodhue Boat Company and the marinas. As you know, in the summer, we're all around in their many locations in our region, whether it's on Lake Sunapee, Meredith, in Ospie, you name it. And uh, Cody's joining us because they're excited at Goodhue. You may not be thinking about, of course, Meredith and Wolfboro. You may not be thinking about it yet, but you know what? It is not that far away. And the New England Boat Show, I'm already getting uh, invites, and people are excited. It kicks off this week right through the weekend. And a great opportunity to talk about the Boat Club, which Goodhue's offering now, not just in New Hampshire or Maine. Cody, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Jack? Well, good. You know what must be fun for you, despite the weather, despite it being January, despite all the stuff, you're always thinking, like, boats. It's got to be fun. <laughs> for sure. For sure. No, we, we always have boats on the mind. And it's interesting. People ask me all the time, well, what do you guys do in the off season? And uh, we work really, really hard. It's crazy busy in the winter, especially this year where the boat show is earlier than typical. Folks that are familiar will remember that it's usually mid-February and just based on contracts and agreements and things uh, between the powers that be, um, you know, at the at the Boston Convention Center, it's early this year. Like you mentioned, I mean, it kicks off Wednesday, goes through Sunday, and uh, it's almost, you know, it's a whole month early. So, uh, you know, we're hoping folks both get the message and have an opportunity to uh, to come out. One advantage that we're seeing, though, already is timing for the season. Uh, historically, at the Boston Boat Show, when people place an order for a new boat, uh, it's really, really tight timing to have that boat custom produced because these boats are all handmade. Uh, you know, to have your boat custom handmade for you and have it in time for, uh, you know, early uh, early summer. So this year we've got uh, some extra time, and uh, that's going to take a little bit of pressure off of uh, off of us and, and make sure that we can get customers the boats that they're that they're looking for for summer 2024 well and you know what um i want to get to the boat club in a moment but talk about the new england boat show a lot of fun stuff you're going to be participating tell us about it cody yeah so uh it's if you haven't been it's massive if if you've been there uh you know i'm sure you're itching to go back um all the manufacturers that you can imagine uh you know for the boats that are around they all have uh they all have booths we're representing I think it's seven booths down there between Cobalt and Chaparral, Mastercraft, Boston Whaler, uh, Sylvan Pontoons, um, Premier Pontoons. And this year, for the first time, we have a Goodhue Boat Company corporate booth. And we've, we've never had that before, but you'd mentioned boat clubs, and those are getting so popular. Um, you know, we have a, you know, a strong rental part of the, you know, part of the business. And just in general, we wanted to have a space where folks could uh, you know, get to know us a little bit better, uh, you know, as a company and the products and services and things that we offer outside of those great boat brands, because owning a boat isn't for everybody. I mean, a boat club, you know, a shared ownership kind of thing makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Yeah. And I know when we did our remote shows in your marinas, we had a lot of listeners that want to jump on that. Uh, best way to become a boat club member, because you have all these locations, call ahead, use a boat, now, if you're a mariner or a boater, you know when you come in, if it's your boat, you're doing a lot of cleaning, a lot of prep. You know what? Come in, dock, take your stuff, leave it the way you found it, and move on. So a lot of less stress, less wear and tear, less expense. What's the best way to learn more or to join the boat club, Cody? 
Yeah, you can go to carefreeboat.com. Uh, we're a partner uh, and licensee of, of Carefree. So that the advantage there is people get to use that nationwide or actually worldwide network of boat clubs if you become a member uh, at our marinas. Or you can go to goodhueboat.com, and uh, we have some information there about the clubs, and you can submit uh, just your name and email address, and, and we'll – uh, reach out to you and set up a you know a time to answer answer your questions. But you, I mean you're absolutely right about the benefits there. Owning a boat, um, like I said, isn't for everybody. It just kind of depends on you know how much time are you actually going to use it, and uh, you know at the end of the day, is it worth the hassle and expense of the insurance and the maintenance and all of those things, or do you want someone else to take care of all of that for you, and you have an opportunity to drive. Uh, you know, different types of boats, new boats uh, all over the country. Cody Gray, uh, the GM of uh, Goodhue Boat Company and Marinas, and we're going to tell you the locations. But what I also love, Cody, is you've grown the the uh, the family, the business, if you will, and locations, is if someone does join your boat club, no disrespect for other boat clubs, it really is a local, regional entity. They can talk to someone. You're there. Your team's there. But look at the locations now. I mean, if you want to go over to Lake Sunapee, if you want to go right out of Meredith, if you want to go to Wolfboro, you want to go to Ossipee, you want to go to Maine, you want to go to Florida, you, you have all these locations, Virginia, you have all these locations, you can use a boat. Yeah, huge, huge advantage. Something that if you own your own boat, um, you can trailer that thing right. <laughs> uh, all over the place. And, and that's not fun, nor is it really uh, a good idea. I mean, uh, you know, certainly the the environmental topic has, has been coming up a lot. We've been spending a lot of time in Concord and, you know, talking with different, uh, you know, House and, and Senate, uh, uh, you know, committees about uh, environmental aspects of boating. That's certainly on everybody's mind, especially ours. And one of the things that comes up a lot, we're talking about cyanobacteria blooms and we're talking about uh, aquatic invasive species and things like that. And trailering your boat from place to place to place. Um, you know, has been known to contribute to those types of things. And so uh, that's another, uh, maybe not top of priority list for everybody, but another advantage of a, of a boat club is those boats stay where they are. They stay on that water body. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to. You can go and drive uh, another boat that stays put uh, on another lake, and you don't have that cross-contamination traveling of, uh, you know, a boat and its water system from lake to lake. And also just the transportation issues and driving and, you know, the trailer and the crowds. Oh, hey, the parking. It, it is, yeah. the parking, everything. Cody, one last time, if you want to learn more about the Boat Club, of course, the New England Boat Show, I think, does it kick off, kick off tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow, it does. And it's right down in Boston, right? Yep, Boston Convention Center on uh, on Summer on Summer Street, right in the Seaport. Right. Now, you know I'm a Boston whaler guy, but if uh, people want to learn more about the Boat Club or boats, best way is how, Cody? Uh, com for sure. All right, thank you. Make it a good Tuesday. We'll catch you real soon on Good Morning New Hampshire, the pulse of an H. Jack Heath, Cody Gray. Thank you, Cody. Thanks, Jack. Under the category, I'm glad it's him and not me. Frigid Steiny reporting nationally for Fox News. We're talking about that Attorney General letter yesterday to the DNCs on top of it all. In Iowa, J-Doc, he's shaking. He's, he's a little chilly in the hotel. They don't even have heat in the hotel lobbies in Iowa. I don't know if you knew that. Good morning, Paul. You know, the snow followed me, right? I mean, we had 10 inches in the seacoast on Sunday. I come out here, still snowing, Jock. We got nine inches on the ground in Des Moines, more to come. 
a bunch of campaign events canceled. We did have uh, Nikki Haley last night at a town hall right here in Des Moines. Tonight we'll have Ron DeSantis, and then tomorrow night, Donald Trump, who's spending today in court. Tomorrow he'll be here in Iowa for a Fox News town hall as well. But uh, a lot of the action, as you said, back in New Hampshire, you got the, uh, the, yeah, the, you know, the state attorney general taking action against the DNC. You got the two brand new polls this morning, Jack, showing very different things. One of the polls indicates Donald Trump up 20 points over Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. The other poll shows he's only up seven points. So I guess we'll find out on January 3rd whether Trump has a big lead or doesn't have a big lead in New Hampshire. Well, we just had Governor Christian in a new one. Let me get back to Iowa, though. Uh, by, by the way, a little, little chilly there, Paul. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's and the worst is yet to come. I mean, today is like in the 20s, but we're supposed to get down into the negative numbers uh, by the end of the All weekend right. into, uh, and into over the weekend into the caucus. It's going to get cold here. This latest uh, UNH poll showing Nikki Haley within seven points of Donald Trump here in New Hampshire. Two weeks to go from today, Paul. But what's more interesting is I wanted your reaction. Governor Sununu making some news. We've had media folks requesting this. He knows the the voting stuff pretty well here, as you know. He he predicts the big surprise is going to be, and I wrote it down when he said it. Quote: More than forty percent of what he calls undeclared, you know, non Republican primary voters are likely are going to vote, and that could really make this an interesting finish between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, or Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. You know, he he's got a point there. Listen, independent voters they make up about forty percent of the electorate in New Hampshire. They've always. Uh, played a crucial role in the presidential primary because they could go either way. Right. And it sure looks this time around like they're going to probably vote more in the Republican primary than the Democratic primary. Why? Democratic primary doesn't look too exciting, right? Biden is a writing candidate. He's got a couple long shot contenders. But if you believe the polls, Biden is way, way up. There doesn't seem to be a lot of interest there. I, I think I think the governor is right. A lot of these Indies are going to come over to the Republican contest. That's where the wow. action is. That's where the excitement is. And they're probably not going to vote for Donald Trump. All right. I appreciate it, Paul. You stay warm. Have your yogurt in your hotel. Go out there and cover the stories for Fox and Fox. Thank you, Paul. Hey, come on out, Jack. Come on. You know what? Uh, it's fine. You got it. You got it. All you, Bal. All you. <laughs> I get. Thank you, you Paul. I get talked to going to uh, into going to River Falls, Wisconsin, once for a brother-in-law's birthday, and it was like in the middle of winter. Had to fly into Minneapolis and go to Wisconsin. I got to tell you right now. Uh, no thanks. You can have it. Hey, Aaron Rial, NBC News Radio National Correspondent, joining us. Good morning, New Hampshire, the Pulse of an H. Aaron, good morning. A lot going on. Take it away. Yes, a lot going on today. And we're actually looking at Gen Zers today. So apparently a third of them, Jack, are living with their parents or a family member, and it's simply because they can't afford to rent or buy. Now, Gen Z, that is 1997 to 2012. So, yes, the youngest among them are 11, and they should be living at home. But there are many that are, you know, in their early 20s. The oldest is 26. And while we can sit here and curmudgeonly say, oh, they're lazy, they need to get off the couch and go do it, the fact of the matter is today 30% of the median income is now needed to pay the average rent here in America. The average graduating student is making an entry-level salary. They don't have enough. The numbers do not work out for them to live alone and pay rent. And we're seeing a massive cultural shift. Actually, according to Census Bureau data, the percentage of young adults living at home has climbed over 80% over the last two decades. And what's even more fascinating is that a lot of these parents who have their Gen Zers living with them, they aren't that perturbed by it. In fact, they don't mind it at all. Interesting. Well, again, I know a lot of people in our circles, this is the truth. This is what's happening. You know, 
young kid moves back home in their mid to late 20s, just not able to sort of make the housing thing happen, wants to work and save that rent for a couple of years, you know, staying in mom and dad's house, I guess. Um, it, it's something that earlier generations are not used to at all. I mean, you know, the old unwritten rule in my generation was 18, 19, 20. Yeah, your bedroom that used to be yours is now a family room or a den. You're gone. You know, <laughs> uh, when you come home from college, enjoy your week and go back and then get an apartment and a job. And it's like the birds in the spring, you know, fly the nest. You're done. And it's certainly exactly. changed. It's certainly changed a lot. It, it certainly has. And I listen, I'm an elder millennial. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You couldn't have paid me to move home. And I, I don't dislike my parents. It's not saying that. It's just like, no. that was not something I was going to do. And I also think my baby boomer parents. Had I gone home for too long, they very likely would have been like a uh, failure to launch. Like, <laughs> I just think the tenor was so different where now you have a lot of multi-generational living, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, there, there's lots of studies that say that it's a good thing. But I think that there's a profound difference between multi-generational living and having a young person at home who is trying their best, who is contributing, and having a young person at home who, you know, is just working a job and buying Gucci products, that's a different story. And, and that's, that's not necessarily a good thing. But here's another thing. The typical first-time homeowner is now 36 years old. This is according to the Association of Realtors. That is a record high, and it's actually a full decade older than Gen Zers. So if you're one of those, you know, young people trying to save up, you might be a ways away from buying. Yeah, interesting. Thank you very much, Aaron Rial. Two weeks from today, New Hampshire votes first in the nation in the road of the White House, despite the DNC telling Democrat voters here it's detrimental to vote in the primary because we don't, we don't want New Hampshire's primary to matter. How is that okay? How is that okay to leading Democrats in this state? How is that okay? How is that like a sideshow? Are you kidding me? Don't vote in your primary? Because we're not respecting New Hampshire's position. Don't vote. Oh, my goodness. Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota had some words about that yesterday. He was on with me. But Chris Sununu talking about this latest poll, UNH, showing Nikki Haley closing the gap with Donald Trump. And, of course, Iowa's going Monday, but New Hampshire two weeks from today to seven points. Wow. Sununu also predicting this morning for Brad Card, who's coming on now, one of our political analysts and all-stars, Card and Associates. And Brad will be with us on primary day and evening. At his alma mater, uh, West Wing Institute of Politics, St. Anselm College, uh, Sununu predicting more than 40% in this upcoming primary two weeks from today of non-sort of traditional Republican voters will take part in the Republican primary. That could bode well for Nikki Haley and make this quite interesting. Brad Card, good morning. Hey, Jack. Yeah, what? I you know. I heard your interview earlier today with the governor, with Governor Sununu, and I think he's dead on with his assessment. Elaborate. I mean, I want to hear the card take. Well, in, in my opinion, look, Nikki Haley is moving, and there's no question about it, and you feel it. And you, you know, these kind of things, you have momentum, and you feel it. And polls showing her within seven. Um, you've got Governor Christie at 12. If he gets out, the majority of those voters have to go to Nikki Haley because they're anti-Trump voters significantly, and, and they're going to be more mainstream conservative Republicans, in my opinion. So I think that's Nikki Haley's path. Um, I, look, at since Governor Sununu endorsed Nikki Haley, she's been on a, a, a massive rise, and, and, and he should take a lot of credit for that. And, and I think he has been a voice to get out there and to bring real attention to her campaign so people could actually look and see what she's saying. 
and then seeing that actually she she has got a pretty good record and she's the one that can actually beat Donald Trump and move on. If she beats Donald Trump in New Hampshire, that that's a big deal. Well, what happens then? Well, look at then you go to South Carolina. What, what you're showing is that Donald Trump. Look at he lost the last election, whether he wants to admit it or not. Or not. Trump candidates in New Hampshire certainly did very poorly in the last uh, federal election. Uh, they did not do well nationally. Republicans were supposed to have a 40-seat gain in the House of Representatives. Didn't even come close to that. They got one of the closest margins now of majority that, that, that they've ever had in, in, in the United States Congress. So Donald Trump is not a winner. Donald Trump isn't the guy that's the winner. If Nikki Haley beats him in New Hampshire, I think that shows it, and I think that opens up a whole, whole lot of folks to look at it, to actually really look at Nikki Haley as being somebody that can win. And then when you look at her polling against Joe Biden, she does much better against Joe Biden than Donald Trump does. Well, again, what about Iowa? I just was on with a few of our ex-analysts, Brad, Brad Card. Um, I personally, just in New Hampshire, very little in the past of Iowa, the Republican primaries have influenced New Hampshire's primary in terms of an outcome. Maybe it's different this time. But Sununu said, two people said they're going to win Iowa, the caucus process, Trump and DeSantis. Only one can. Is there a surprise in the works in Iowa or not? No, you know, I've said with you, Jack, I said that DeSantis has to win Iowa. I don't see anything happening for him if he doesn't win Iowa. He's not, he's, 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 his campaign certainly isn't picking up momentum in New Hampshire. He doesn't seem to have, you don't feel any energy around his campaign. He, he spent a boatload of money. He's had to have massive reshuffles on his campaign. His super PAC has basically imploded. So he's not, he's not on the rise. And but he has to win New Hampshire, and if he does, I mean he has to win Iowa. And if he doesn't win Iowa, then he's in deep you know, trouble. Look at Iowa doesn't pick presidents, unfortunately, in my opinion. I mean, they don't forget you had Ted Cruz win Iowa, yeah. right? Well, so I, I've said before in the past, Brad. I said yesterday in the show in some commentary, New Hampshire doesn't necessarily pick the president in the primary, but we disrupt and influence the path to the White House. Certainly. Bill Clinton coming in second to the late Paul Songas, going on to winning. Uh, yeah, there was a recession. Yeah, there was Ross Probe. Became a two-term president. Jimmy Carter. I mean, I could go on. John McCain disrupted the process a little more than a bit. Um, so New Hampshire can disrupt. But I guess my question is, uh, you know, I'm looking at this. It's been such a narrative, Brad, for so long. Biden, Trump. There are your choices in right. 2024. Biden, the Trump. The is Nikki Haley. Yeah, I mean, I hate to, New Hampshire can be the disruptor, and he can be New Hampshire can be the disruptor against the Trump campaign because Trump. Let's face it, his poll numbers he's been he's right. been light years ahead of his second place competitor, and now you see a poll in New Hampshire that shows Donald Trump up only seven. And if this were if Chris Christie were to get out and kind of, I agree with Governor Sununu's assessment as well. If he can put his ego aside and kind of do what he says is important to him, which is beating Donald Trump, then he gets out of the race, and those voters significantly will go to Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley is showing that she can reach across into the into the uh, independent sector and motivate them. And if she can get them to the polls, I think that she can win New Hampshire. And if she wins New Hampshire, that's a massive disruption, and it's a massive dif- disruption to the Trump campaign. 
Interesting. Well, let's. Uh, I guess the only other thing we can talk about right now is, you know, um, I, Ron DeSantis for a moment. Because let's face it, Brad, for so long, for so long, Ron DeSantis, after getting reelected to Florida with big coattails, big state, big population, he was the big Republican name. He was the number one draft choice going into this year, despite Donald Trump. Then Trump jumps in, bashes DeSantis. DeSantis may have waited a little bit too long to really get into states like Florida. But is it the big state syndrome, Brad? And the reason why I'm asking you this is I remember some uh, U.S. senators and candidates and governors from other states that came into New Hampshire with the entourage. Is it just sometimes they're almost a victim of being from too big of a state to kind of do the retail politicking here? Or what, what if Ron DeSantis doesn't end up well in New Hampshire what went wrong there? It's, I mean, the New England Patriots are asking the same question this morning behind closed doors with their season this year. What went wrong? Well, look, I like Governor DeSantis. I think he's done a, he's done a good job as governor of Florida. Um, he is not, in my opinion, naturally charismatic. To you don't you don't fall in love with the guy. You, you know, he doesn't he, he doesn't instill you. He's very competent. He's done a really good job as governor, and that's kind of his selling point. I think the last town hall meeting that he did on CNN uh, a few days ago uh, was actually his best performance. And I think he came across as being more likable and uh, a little bit less angry. I think that anger can only get you so far. And look, he is a, he comes across as being very angry. He's going to fight. He's going to fight. He's going to fight. And, you know, does everything have to be a fight? I think that's what some voters say. I think Nikki Haley has actually done the best job of the candidates in kind of being willing to be a tough a tough executive and fight for the causes that are important, but also reach out, bridge, uh, build bridges, kind of build consensus, reach across to to vast uh, vastly different political groups to show that she can govern. So I think that that's the difference, and I think that's one of DeSantis's biggest problems because in a okay, small state like Iowa and New Hampshire. You have to do retail politics, and I think it's much less about retail politics in the big states because, by definition, they're so big, it's difficult to meet that many people. But in New Hampshire, you can actually talk well, to the candidates, real quick, and 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 they will vote on that. This UNH poll, if there's anything to it, um, showing, let me just get the let me just get the numbers for you. Uh, Trump, this is UNH likely Republican primary voters two weeks from today. Trump thirty nine, Nikki Haley thirty two, Chris Christie twelve. Vivek Ramaswamy, 8, DeSantis, 5, and then it drops off. The Christie number, and Christie, if Christie doesn't, he hasn't really been focusing on Iowa, does he stay in the race for the next two weeks through New Hampshire, or does he pull a surprise and throw an endorsement by, behind someone? Obviously, it would not be Donald Trump, because Christie's path to this race has been bashing the former president, Donald Trump. Does Christie stay in this through New Hampshire? You know, I hope he doesn't. Uh, it, it seems like he's going to. That's kind of the direction that he's he's signaling that he's going to stay in the race. Um, I hope he doesn't. And, and the reason why I hope he doesn't is because I actually like Governor Christie very much, um, and and I think he has been correct in his criticism of Donald Trump. Uh, I think he's made some really valid points. What I what I believe though is that voters right now are not going to elect him. He's not going to win New Hampshire. We see that his campaign is not the campaign in New Hampshire that's on the move. So if he's really genuine in saying that we've got to beat Donald Trump, the yeah. candidate that can beat Donald Trump right now is Nikki Haley. And so he should get out, and he should throw his support behind Nikki Haley, in my opinion. She also aligns fairly 
really well with him politically. Yeah. Yes, there's a well, couple items that remember, they don't agree on, but I think overall they they yep. they could actually they could actually be. Uh, I think they could even be. You know, well, he could he could be in an Kaylee administration because well, of his. Politics. The last Republican debate, remember when Ramaswamy was going at Haley, Christie kind of came in as like you know, big brother or lifeguard to speak up and, you know, sort of defend her. All right, Brad, we're going to run. We'll catch you real soon. Good morning, Hampshire. Right, we'll see Seacoast on the line, APX, Alicia Preston with an X, Xanthopolis. Is it true when a little wind and rain come to Hampton Beach, you evacuate the home? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Ever source? No, I'm kidding. They said first one's out is Preston. The Preston's always leave the beach. Yeah. Now we're the diehards that stay here through the wind and let it blow through our hair. What do you think? Do you, you think there's any credibility to this UNH poll? I don't know. I mean, I've been skeptical of polls all along. I think the UNH poll certainly sounds more like what I see out there and feel out there. I think maybe, you know, people are more motivated to be participating in these things now. If that's the case, I think there could be some legitimacy to it. Yeah, it's interesting. What dynamics are at work? I mean, I'm just sort of, you know, this whole thing with the DNC, I, I got to tell you, I, I wonder if this thing, let me ask you, because you, you've, been, you've been the reporter type, you've advised, you talk for Seacoast Online, you write, you know this stuff as well as anyone. And I, I hope you can help us out on primary day as well, calling in in the evening. Uh, we'll, be at, we'll be at St. Anselm's. But and the other thing I want you to do is tell people how they can write, because every time you're on, some people will always say, how do we get in touch with her? So, um, my question to you is, this Democrat National Committee letter mm. that has now been published over the weekend made national news to Ray Buckley, executive director of the Democrat Party. It's a long letter from two members of the DNC bosses, if you will, basically sort of like warning New Hampshire, tell your voters, tell your loyal Democrats, do not participate, do not vote in your state's primary. It's detrimental to what we want detrimental tell them not to participate we don't want you to go it's going to cost you political chips in the game if you have this primary now you and i know we're having the primary it's set by the secretary of state the dnc doesn't tell new hampshire what to do but they're trying to tell their democrat party elders what to do what are they thinking is that going to backfire and blow up because if i'm a democrat voter semi undecided i'm not sure i want joe biden for four more years I mean, that's what 80 percent of the polls show for democrats do I resent this letter? Do I take this as kind of an affront to go, no, I'm going to vote, and it's not going to be what you want? I mean, what was going on with this letter? You know, it's childish. It's bullyish. You know, kudos to Ray Buckley for pushing back. Kudos to the New Hampshire Attorney General for writing a cease and desist letter. I mean, you guys, people want to talk about election interference. Telling people their vote is irrelevant is kind of election interference, is it not? Or, or uh, suppression, or suppression. Or, or suppression, which the suppression creates the interference, right? I mean, I think people should be rightly outraged. Political parties and these party bosses are not in charge of the people, of the states, or the votes. We've got a state law that says when our primary, it says our Secretary of State sets our primary and we go first. That's our state law. There is not a political party or other political wahoo in the world that can override the will of the people of New Hampshire and the laws in the state of New Hampshire. And I think it's outrageous. I think it is attempting to make New Hampshire irrelevant, which is what they'd like to do, because for some reason they've decided we're too white to be part of the political process, which should outrage <laughs> or, or, everybody. Or our voters participate and are very well informed. Alicia, let me ask you a question. 
why don't we hear more from Democrat leaders here in New Hampshire? I mean, Ann Custer yesterday, representative of 2nd District, she comes from a family of political history. Where's the passionate defense of our New Hampshire presidential primary from some Democrats that, 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 that basically the DNC and Biden, they, want, they took away New Hampshire's primary? Where's the defense like, no, this is a proud part of the early process of running for president. You're not going to intimidate us like organized crime bosses. Where's the defense of New Hampshire's presidential primary? You know, I have to say, I think Senator Shaheen, I think Chairman Buckley have done a very good job standing up to the New Hampshire primary. I think others are silent, and I think it's, it's this tightrope they're trying to walk because they want to support Joe Biden, who has made the decision to not be on the ballot, and they want to support their own party, and they don't want to tick off the base of their party here in New Hampshire as well. So they're walking this fine line, and I don't think they're doing it very well. I agree. Everyone should stand up and say, this isn't just tradition. This is how it should be. Look, look at Nikki Haley right now. There is no way... And I know that's the Republican side, but it goes for the Democrats that went for Bill Clinton back in the 90s. There is no way someone with little name ID, without $100 million in the bank, can start campaigning in a major state, right. in a large geographic state right. with multimedia markets. Right. There right. is no way. Right. This New Hampshire gives people the opportunity to really learn you know candidates. I, I remember Bill Clinton, governor yeah. of Arkansas. You know, you know what his staff was? Guess who his staff was, Alicia? You weren't in that newsroom, but guess who his staff was? Who? George Stephanopoulos. Yeah. Um, Green Ski Parker couldn't even afford. They were staying at the Days Inn by the Manchester-Boston Regional Airport. Couldn't even afford, like, a razor, a scruff, you know, beer. Two weeks, a month ago before the primary, if it wasn't for John Broderick, Terry Shoemaker, and Steve McAuliffe, Clinton had no campaign here. Couldn't afford it. I remember once he said to me in the MUR newsroom, Hey, you're nice to put me on. I want to talk about the economy. Jack, you know what the salary for the governor of Arkansas is? It was like $35,000 at the time. He goes, I can't afford this. If it wasn't for this primary, he became a two-term president. Right. right. Jimmy and Carter. Look, Jimmy Carter, sure. peanut farmer from Georgia. I mean, I could go on. New Hampshire has been an important part of the process. It has nothing to do with the crap that the DNC has used as an excuse. My thing is, though, I think we could hear more objection louder objection from people from both sides of the aisle that we care about this primary and the process New Hampshire plays. Well, and to your point, I think every candidate who, who, who aspires for higher office should do it because otherwise ooh, you're going to be able to get a Bloomberg because he can self-fund a Bloomberg and a Trump. Those are the only people that are going to, whomever's got the money to start, that's who's going to be able to get a nomination if you start playing in big states like New York or elsewhere early on. It's it's a fool's errand. It's political pandering to racial bias is all it is. And, you know, the Democrats should be held accountable for it. Yeah. And I got to tell you, you know, uh, that's why Representative Dean Phillips from Minnesota yesterday, he did a very eloquent, great job defending New Hampshire's primary. Of course, he's running here. All right. APX, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, You can always email me at PrestonPerspective at gmail.com is probably the easiest way. All right. Stay on the beach tonight and tomorrow, will you? Just, I will. Hope you know, I don't float away. Just just hang in there, okay? <laughs> Thanks watch, for your concern, watch, Jeff. Watch out for the ghost ships <laughs> that tear free from their moorings. You got it. No more big boats. All right. Have a great day, man. Rory O'Neill, NBC News Radio National Correspondent. Rory, what a week in Washington between co- lawyers and court, Secretary of Defense, and I even heard Dr. Fauci's making a cameo. Take it away, Rory. 
Yeah, he is. Uh, Dr. Fauci right now in day two of his testimony in Washington talking about the government response to COVID. Yesterday, I think their questioning went on for eight hours, uh, another seven hours scheduled for today. Yesterday, a lot of the focus on uh, gain-of-function research, what that means, did the U.S. fund it, what was going on in Wuhan, uh, all those different questions. Uh, a lot of I don't remember, I don't recalls, but we'll see how that uh, testimony continues today uh, as part of that uh, congressional investigation. Meanwhile, the hearing just wrapped up at federal court in Washington where lawyers are arguing about uh, whether or not former President Trump enjoys immunity uh, from prosecution for those election interference charges filed out of Washington. A three-judge panel heard arguments for about 90 minutes today, right. back and forth, a bit longer than expected. So we'll get a ruling from them in a couple of weeks. I was going to ask you, when do you think we'll hear from the judges? A couple of weeks? Yeah, I'd say it's a few weeks. I mean, I, I know they're trying to expedite it, but yeah. uh, you know, it, th that March 4th trial date seems very unlikely at this point. All right, thank you. Thank you, Rory O'Neill, NBC News Radio National Correspondent. Russ Conti who's in our studios, nice enough to come by this morning here in the Capital Region. Still with us, State of New Hampshire Department of Safety on the Mental Health and Wellness Coordinator position side. But, Russ, you've really, and we're doing this a week from Wednesday, you're going to be up on stage with us really trying to raise awareness. My goal on this is to take three full hours, nothing else, mental health. And, of course, you know the folks with the DEA, addict synthetic fentanyl and the toll it's taking. How important is this? I think it's extremely important, and I think the best thing that, that I'm seeing what's coming up next Wednesday is you're combining everyone, and that's really what the what the issues are. This crosses over. It crosses over from mental health to substance abuse and addiction, and, you know, I mean, you could bring it into uh, some of what the crisis management efforts have been and just some of what's happening in the country and in the world with these critical incidents that, you know, that not only police but mental health professionals are responding to. Since you've jumped in after a career in law enforcement, you became acutely concerned and aware of folks in public safety, for example, that, that, that like all of us, anxiety, depression, emotional stuff, just bury it, don't talk about it, put it, lock it up in a little compartment somewhere. Doesn't work, does it? Never worked. Uh, it was the practice for many, many years. We had absolutely nothing when I started uh, many years ago. You know, there wasn't any assets, and we finally figured out that not only were we losing people, uh, we were losing careers and we were losing relationships and and first responders were losing you know re, uh, marriages and they were losing frankly their attachment with their profession and it took us a long time to figure out not only to identify but to come up with ways that we could deal with it to add longevity you know to the career and I think the young people that come in now um, uh, not only are they do they embrace it they know they need it. It's an ever-changing world. What it was when I started is much different yeah. now. But, but, you know, the, the amazing thing, Russ, we can talk about viruses, heart attacks, stroke, cancer, all these things that are part of the human condition that too many of us have loved ones, ourselves, family that have dealt with this. But if you ask 50 or 100 people in a room, teenagers, right? John Broderick, a good friend of yours and ours, wrote up peace recently that our children are not well in terms of emotional well-being teenagers college students do you realize do you realize that the number one source of college visits with the infirmary and the on-campus health care 
are not only th- are not over things like sore throat, vi- the flu. It's over anxiety and depression. And yet, many of these college campus infirmaries don't have the therapists or the clinicians on staff. Emergency rooms in our state taking mental health episodes. Why is this subject up until now, and hopefully no longer going forward, so squelched? You know, I th- I think it's you know these are these are you know they're multi level, right? And they're complicated, and I think that's that's part of it. And I think traditionally you had people like first responders that were handling a number of these, if not ninety percent of them, that didn't have the training. There wasn't a layup. There wasn't you know there wasn't avenues that were made. So now we're finally coming in. You know, an emergency room is not the best place for somebody to be suffering a mental health crisis. As a matter of fact, there's been a lot of steps taken by a lot of great leaders. You know, the governor's office, there's been a lot of things that have happened to try to remedy this. And I think, you know, we haven't come up with a, with a positive solution. But if you look at the advocates, if you look at the mental health professionals that are out there, if you look at law enforcement and first responders, fire, police, EMT, all these people that are responding to this, they realize we have to do this better. There's got to be a way to get people into help, to get people into recovery where we're not entering them into a situation where they're going to end up in the criminal justice system. Right. And you know what bothers me or concerns me, Russ, and a week from tomorrow, if you are listening and you want to come, three hours, Bank of New Hampshire stage, live town hall, Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, on this subject with a lot of great partners and experts like Russ. But Russ, if I'm watching a football game on the weekend, wild card weekend, I'm a pro-market person. I'm not trying to get abstract here but you know the number of ads where it's billions and billions and billions of dollars to take a pill that could cause stroke dizziness death or whatever for this or that i you know i get it to a point and medication is part of the process but you look at all the money in our healthcare system we have a shortage of nurses shortage of mental health professionals entering the ranks not enough psychologists psychiatrists therapists the demand is overwhelming we need to sound the alarm at the highest level, saying, and you know, Russ, you and I know this. You were major in the state police a lot of years. If you went to the job with some colleagues of yours 10, 15 years ago, or five years ago, or 10 minutes ago, and said, geez, I was, I was cutting some wood this week and I threw my back out, people would say, oh, yeah, no problem. If you went into your job and said, you know, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm down, I don't feel well mentally, too often people just don't want to talk to you. We got to remove stigmas, right? We have to remove the stigma, and that's something that you can never let your foot off the gas on. Uh, that's something you have to do continually because that is a difficult, complicated situation, and especially when you talk about first responders, you couldn't be more right. Wouldn't it be nice that we would look at an injury, and I've been out on injury, everybody has, and look at it the same way. An injury, whether psychological or physical, is treated the same way. You know, it, it, you know, if you talk to the professionals that are out there, you talk to people from now, I mean, they, I mean there's all kinds of, of monikers that they have, you know, the, the no casserole illness. You know, when you have a mental illness, nobody brings food to your house. Nobody makes sure that right, you right. Know, your kids are eating. Right. You know, it, it's all those things. And I think it, it bleeds over to everything. Um, and, it, and it takes a real, you know, a, a real resolution uh, to look at it and to look at it but, in a way to help people recover, regardless of what they do for work. Now, I know you and I are preaching to the Mutual Choir. Before we go to a break, we'll come back with Russ talking a little more about this issue, teeing up next Wednesday's town hall. He'll be there on stage. Russ, here's part of the problem. It affects your overall physical health. 
if you're down mentally, if you're battling addiction, can affect your professional standing, your marriage, your relationships, your kids, your friendships. Um, the other thing is the societal cost is you, it's, you can't calculate it, right? And yet we don't want to really focus on this. But if you look at people in my life, your life, nephews, nieces, sister-in-laws, brother-in-laws, neighbors, college buddies, high school buddies, everyone in your circles, probably 75% or more would say someone in my life or me battle with some degree of depression, could be seasonal, anxiety, depression, can't sleep, or too often addiction goes hand in hand because people self-medicate, right? I'll just keep taking this pill. It'll make the pain go away. We need to be honest about this. I couldn't agree more. We need to be totally honest, codependence, all those things that you mentioned. And, you know, it's more like 100%. I, yeah. I get out to speak. And, I, you know, there was a time when you asked, you know, who, is there anybody here that's been affected? You'd see a few hands go up. And the reality is now if you go speak to a group of people and say who's had those effects in their family, they'll, every hand goes up. Everybody wants to talk about it. And, you know, the thing is, the first step is being comfortable enough to talk about it. Right, right. And being comfortable enough to be supported and being surrounded by people that not only understand, but they're willing to do something about it and make a difference. Well, I just see too much of it, so that's why I decided to at least do this next, uh, before the presidential primary of the lot of media here, because trying to raise awareness. Come back, Russ Connie. We'll talk a little bit about what he does for the state on the mental health and wellness coordinator side. Hey, Google. Hey, Alexa, play the pulse of nature. Russ Conti. You're the mental health and wellness coordinator for Department of Safety. I, uh, State Police Department of Safety. I, I have a theory. Just like physical illness has always been there, we know mental illness has always been there. For whatever reasons, and I think the world's always been crazy at times, but I think social media makes it worse. I think the pressure on young people, cyberbullying, um... I think there are a lot of things that have just made the numbers of people, all stages, all walks of life, have more problems with this. And yet we haven't turned up the heat on dealing with it. That's, that's what I'm feeling. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that it's always been there. And I think there's always, you know, it always comes with fear also. People that know somebody that's going through a mental health crisis or somebody has to deal with it, there's always a, you know, are they, is it a dangerous situation? Is it not a dangerous situation? And I think the thing that, you know, we got to wrap our heads around it, it has always been there. And we've lost a lot of people, and a lot of people have melted into the, into the seams of the world, and they've, you know, you've known nothing of them until they're gone. And, you know, the ones that you hear are the worst cases when, in fact, people that suffer from mental health issues are, you know, are much more... Right apt to become victims than perpetrators of any crime. But, uh, you know, the truth of it is you, you couldn't be more right. And I think we have to now determine that it's not just because we're talking about it that we're seeing it. Right. You know, we're yeah. opening the doors, and now we're getting people help instead well, of ignoring in the military, right. I've had friends that have done several combat tours of duty, humbled and blessed to know some of these more special operative elite warriors, and they would say openly that something you weren't supposed to talk about. If you were beaten up emotionally, down, just shut up, deal with it. You're a special forces guy. You'll be okay. Um, the other thing I want to ask you is, and I can speak to this firsthand, you know, it wasn't many decades ago, Russ, that if you had a loved one or you had cancer, the C word was kind of like an island 
on your uh, under yourself. People, they were afraid what the neighbors would think. Um, people would turn away, just like we're talking about today. You have cancer. Not only have treatments come a long way, but the attitude, the openness, the fighting it, the embracing it, the support is rather amazing for all kinds of cancer, not mental health. Think about that for a minute. It wasn't 20, 30 years ago, someone had cancer. That was your problem, your family's problem. It was just quiet. Today, road races, NFL, support, people, parades, picnics. How can we help? We need to do the same level that we've attacked cancer on physically with mental health, my opinion. I totally couldn't agree more with you. And I think the thing is, you know, there's little smidgens. You know, there's professional sports teams now that you'll see wearing the NAMI green. They'll, they'll wear the color. And you'll see things that will happen. But I don't think it happens to a level where people have totally embraced it. And there's nothing that really isolates a family more than mental health issues. It isolates children from their parents. It isolates families from their neighbors and their own families and their communities because it is complicated. It's, I've said it before. It's something that's very hard to deal with. And it doesn't matter who you are. It no. transcends it everything. It doesn't matter. Good how many, family. Bet, you, you, how many houses or cars right. or zeros you have in your bank account? You got it. It doesn't matter. I have two friends, two people in my close sphere that have younger kids that are battling an addiction problem, an issue. And I can tell you, it's 24-7, whether they're at home or not, with the parents. doesn't matter. They're worried nonstop, right? Of course, right? It rips a family apart. It's like a nuclear bomb. And it's happening more often than not. Now, next Wednesday, John Delena, one of the top DEA officials, Drug Enforcement Administration officials in the country, now New Hampshire resident still, is going to be there. Because he's taking this on with passion. We're going to hear from parents who have lost, teenagers, college students to an opioid uh, to fentanyl overdose who had no signs that that's how they wanted to die three years earlier you know what i'm saying so i don't know russ i mean tell us what you do for the department well right now i'm I'm fortunate uh i get to really you know in a nutshell give back and not only you know did i really start you know the position i've had i've had now for about five years in helping to assure that we have assets for, you know, for first responders, for not only for troopers and, you know, but for police officers overall. I work with a lot of groups throughout the state, but also to carry that over and look at what the assets were that we had that we can now, you know, outward face to the public. Because, again, nothing will change in the area of who gets called when somebody is suspicious, who gets called when somebody is, is in a crisis, who gets called when somebody's worried. So your first responders, you know, hence the name, they are going to be there and they're going to contact that. It's an amazing thing. We have a, a crisis intervention team training program that I work with NAMI. We have been now for, for five years. We've trained 850 But what triggered But what triggered this in you, for you, uh, after you know, for all me, the years in law enforcement? Yeah, I, I got to tell you what, what triggered it for me is, number one, lost some friends. Now, I'll be completely upfront with that, lost some friends. Saw a lot of uh, a lot of careers end uh, much sooner than they should have, or they were never able to finish their careers. So I saw things that that I knew we had. I, I mean, I knew what it was, but I also knew we had nothing to, you know, that was going to help, um, you know, alleviate it. All we were doing was compounding in a situation that was going to end poorly. So it wasn't only that; it was then the ability to say, 
you know, when this was offered to me, um, you know, I, you know, I think I think I can do something about it. And then to be able to partner with NAMI and the Suicide Prevention Council. How fulfilled you are know, you to be able to do this? I mean, I, in terms of like I, your career, I could. Yeah. You know, I, what nobody, a blessing! What a what a tough yeah. blessing, right? Nobody gets to do this. I am completely blessed. Well, I, I wish could, you'd transfer you transferred know, over to the veteran side because yeah. it's, you know we need leaders like you in that community. I, you know, I, I I honestly could not have set it up any better. If I looked back and said, "Hey, this is what I want to do," and when it's all over in year thirty three. Change over and do something now to give back. Who gets a, an opportunity? So, you know, that's why I got my foot on the gas all the time. I, I have my foot on the gas. Well, I, I keep my it. eyes open. And, you know, and I appreciate everyone that's involved, well, yourself, everybody that's involved, and everybody that has helped, you know, make this a voice and, and get the people the help that they deserve. Well, you know what? For being a New Yorker and a Yankees fan, you've been a great addition. <laughs> And next Wednesday, you'll be there. You're going to bring some uh, great people and experts. And are you going to wear the Casio watch or the Timex next Wednesday? I definitely would break it out. Absolutely. You know, I thought of you because you're one of the great commanders in the state police, and a few of you share the affliction I share to be a watch person. J-Dog knows this because I've, I've shared, I've, I've passed on some watches to the dog. There you go. But have you seen the new, on a fun note for a moment, uh, the new Denzel Washington, I love him, the actor, Equalizer 3 in Italy? Yes. You've seen the, well, the, the, Mob guys in the restaurant shaking down the restaurant, and he leans over. He goes, "Is that a Timex?" I thought of you, <laughs> and he grabs his arm. <laughs> Good movie. I last week to tell you how crazy I am. I admit it. I watched it two nights in a row. It was so good. 